0: Uh, we are not in the black anymore we are not in the dark uh, that we have your light thank you that you have made us new I pray that you would just continue to, to grow that work in us uh, I pray that you speak through Michael uh, that you just open our hearts open our eyes just to hear your word in Jesus name amen and you may be seated normally at this time the elementary and preschool depart but on communion Sundays we all stay together and enjoy time as a family, your children will not bother me even if they may bother you. Um, so uh, feel free to to not be worried about that at all. Uh, I read to my girls on an almost nightly basis, uh, but sometimes things happen and we miss a night or two or sometimes three and we'll open up the book and we'll go, now what happened? What was the last thing that went on? Uh, And I felt like that this week as we are now returning after about an eight-week break from the life of Jacob. And so I want to kind of back up and and figure out what's happened before we get to Genesis 31. We took a break for Christmas and then took a break, another break for uh, talking about the church and what it is. And if we say that we're followers of Christ, if we say we're the body of Christ, what that looks like... Uh, and so we began this series way back in chapter 24 when Abraham sent his servant to come kind of his hometown where he came from to find a wife. Didn't want Isaac to marry anybody in the area. Go back home, find a, a gal for her. And we said then that that servant out of all the people we were going to meet for the next several weeks, was the only person who was truly faithful. The only person who trusted God. The only person who would stand up as an example of of what we should look like. The positive example, and then we would see for several weeks, negative example after negative example after negative example. He prayed when he needed to pray. He prayed. Persevered when he needed to persevere. He stood up to opposition when he needed to. He wasn't afraid. He trusted God. And he found Rebekah for Isaac. And then we find at the end of 24 that um, they got married. We find that in 25 that uh, Rebekah became pregnant and had twins, and, and those twins wrestled in the womb. And Jacob and Esau were born and Jacob was the deceiver, was the heel grabber in a sense because he was holding on to Esau as they came out of the womb. And that picture, that idea of those two brothers fighting is a continual message throughout. We learn in 25 that uh, when they're a little bit older that Jacob uh, takes advantage of Esau, he's hungry, he's starving, and says, I'll, I'll trade you a pot of stew for your birthright, for the, the double portion of the inheritance. And Esau, assuming he's about to die, says, oh, okay, whatever, that's fine. Tricks him out of that. Later we see that through his mother, Jacob also deceives his own father, his blind father, which was a, a curse to deceive the blind in the Old Testament. And yet Jacob deceives his own father, tricks his brother out of the blessing. Well, Esau is ticked and ready to kill him, and Rebecca says, Hey, son, even though this was my idea, maybe you ought to leave town for a while. Go spend some time with my brother. And then when it's safe, we'll call you back. That manipulation, that scheming, uh, seemed to work for Jacob, but he never saw his mother alive again. On his way out of town, on his way, he... Spends the night and and lo and behold, God shows up to this trickster, this deceiver, this uh, man who would fool his brother and trick his father and says, because you are a descendant of Isaac, because you are a descendant of Abraham, I made a promise and I'm going to keep that promise. And I will be with you and I will bring you back to this land. And and Jacob sets up a, a pillar, a rock, and he anoints it and says, this is where God must be, and then he leaves. For 20 years, he leaves. And until the last time we were together in Jacob, back at the end of November, God appears to be silent. He certainly is silent from Jacob's mouth, but Jacob, in a sense, gets what's coming to him. He he meets his mom's brother Laban falls in love with one of his daughters and says, I'll work for you for seven years for the right to marry your daughter. And Laban tricks him and gives him the other one. And then he says, well, but that's not the one I wanted. Ah, That's the way we do it around here. Sorry. And so he works seven more years and gets another one. And those two sisters then enter into a battle, an argument, jealousy, frustration, Leah was unloved but had lots of kids. Rachel was loved but had no kids. And that jealousy, that bitterness uh, tore that family apart. And then Laban, Jacob finally decided, I've had enough of this, I want to go home. And Laban talks him into staying and, and working for six more years. Jacob tries to manipulate the situation with kind of some black magic. And what we learned last time we were together was that despite all of what Jacob was trying to do, it was God that was behind it all the whole time. God was the one that was prospering Jacob. God was the one that was blessing Jacob. And we show up in chapter 31, and we find that now it's time, finally, after 20 years of being away that Jacob is called home. I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to paint some big, broad brush strokes of the background of this passage. It's rather long, chapter 31. And then I want to focus in on just two key points, two key ideas. In the first few verses of chapter 31, we read about the call of Jacob. He learns that Laban's sons and Laban himself are not overly pleased with Jacob. Verse 1 we read, The Laban's son said, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and won't to our father. He has made all this wealth. And Jacob saw that the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. When you mess with a man's money, with his livelihood, he doesn't appreciate that very much. Jacob, through God's blessing, has been plundering Laban's flocks. And now Laban and his sons, who would inherit that, are rightly so, maybe ticked. And then God shows up in verse 3. Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So God calls him like he called Abraham. Go back. And then Jacob has a call of his own. He calls his wives and says, as though he needs to convince them, look, things aren't going well here. It's time for us to leave. Your father's treated me poorly all these years and God appeared to me and said he's taken care of me. It's time for us to go. And for the first time, these sisters agree on something. Yeah, you're right. He's squandered all our, in a sense, our dowry. What we were going to get, he's lost and now you've got it. We better just go. The call comes from God. The call comes from the husband and the family decides this is the best thing and so they take off They head west and then beginning in verse 22 we read a long section all the way through verse 42 of confrontation you see laban finds out that they've left without saying goodbye no goodbye party no let me kiss my grandkids no let me hug my daughters he wakes up one morning and finds that they're gone And now he's even less happy than he was when he lost his sheep. Now he's lost his family. And he takes them in and he pursues them for a week until he finally catches them. The night before he was going to confront Jacob, God confronts him. Don't mess with him. Well, Laban shows up the camp anyway and says, How could you do this? You didn't even let me say bye to my grandkids. Now, some of you are grandparents. Many of you are parents. How would you feel, those of you who have daughters, if your son-in-law took your kids and your grandkids away without saying goodbye? You think Laban's got a right to be ticked? I would be. Some nice young man, no matter how well I might have been blessed while he was around, if he takes one of my daughters without saying goodbye, there's going to be trouble. But then something else happened along the way that that I skipped over, that we're going to come back to. Um, Rachel, for some reason, the text doesn't say why, as they were leaving town, stopped by the house and grabbed her father's what the text called household idols, those things that, that he worshipped and took them too. She stole them. Again, we don't know why. doesn't say. But he says, not only have you taken my family, you've taken my gods away. He confronts Jacob despite the warning from God. And Jacob says, whoa, hold on a second. I didn't take anything and if you can find it here, the person who took it, dead, will kill him. Well, here now, the tension rises because we know that Rachel's got them. So Laban begins to search. He begins to go through all the tents and stuff. And in a rather ironic commentary on the value of Laban's gods, Rachel is sitting on them in the camel. God has a sense of humor. Here's what I think of your gods, Laban. He finds that there's nothing there. And then Jacob confronts him. Look, how dare you pursue me? You've treated me like dirt for the last 20 years. You have no right to come pursue me and get after me. God was right to appear to you last night. You're in the wrong. I'm right, buddy. Jacob doesn't know that his wife had stolen those things. And so Laban is left with very little choice, but... He still loves his daughters and so he proposes a covenant between the two. Look, don't treat my daughters poorly. We're going to set up a rock like like Jacob had said. People did that. They'd set up a stone and they would make a covenant. And they would often it would be, this rock would be a witness. If you treat my daughters poorly in this land you're going to, this rock's going to see that. You're going to be in trouble. In addition, Jacob, let's... Make a covenant, a pact. I won't come past this rock to harm you, but don't you dare come past this rock to harm me. And Jacob says, okay, it's a deal. They have a meal. Everything seems to be okay, and they go their merry way. And we look at this on the surface, and that's a bizarre story. I guess I'm thankful that Laban got to say goodbye to his kids, but... I want to think about Laban for a moment because he's he's like me or I'm like him, I suppose. I, I don't like change. Laban didn't like change. Things were going fairly well for him when Jacob was around. But now that Jacob has left and his family is left, he's, he's left, in a sense, empty. I think he's got a right to be angry or a right to be mad. And yet... All of this was according to God's will. The change of saying goodbye, the change of different circumstances, the change of going from being prosperous to not so much, according to God's will. Does that seem fair? Does that seem right? Laban wasn't perfect, certainly. Just like Jacob, he was a scoundrel. He was a cheat. He was a a dishonest businessman. But nonetheless, sometimes God does things that just don't seem quite right. The change is uncomfortable. The change hurts. The change doesn't seem fair. And So as we look at Laban's life, as we look at his frustration in the midst of his sin, the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do I feel when God turns my life upside down. Do I blame him or someone else, even though I am partially responsible for the sin and the consequences of the of that sin? Laban's a, a minor character, but there's a, a great lesson for us. Sometimes God's will messes with our lives, messes with our comfort, messes with what was convenient for us, and are we willing to trust Him? It may not be fair to Laban. I don't know how well he knew God. Certainly, he didn't get a good picture from Jacob. Certainly, Jacob didn't didn't portray godly character in the least. But we need to back up a little bit. It also may appear from a reading of this, that maybe it was the right time for Jacob to finally leave. He appears to kind of man up a little bit. He's been rather a a wimpy husband, kind of at the whim of what his wives wanted, kind of letting them dictate, not really stepping in and solving any arguments between them. But now he finally, he calls them to him and says, Look, gals, this is what's going to happen. Here's what's been going on. Here's what we're going to do. And so maybe the timing of that had to do with Jacob's maturity. He's finally become the man God wanted him to be. The problem with that is the text doesn't bear that out. You see, Laban had a problem with external change. Had a problem with his livelihood changing, his relationships changing. Jacob's got a problem with internal change. He's not doing it. Go back with me and look at verse 19. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. I wonder where Rachel learned that that habit of deception. And then we read an, an interesting verse. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. A lot of Bibles just say deceived or tricked right there, uh, which is a perfect word. It's what that means, but it's really a figure of speech. What it literally says is, Jacob stole Laban's heart. Verse 19, Rachel stole his household idols. Jacob stole his heart. Jacob hasn't changed. He's the same guy that stole his brother's heart by... Stealing the birthright and the blessing. He's the same guy that stole his father's heart by deceiving him when he was blind. He's the same guy that stole, in a sense, his mother's heart by leaving and she never saw him again. He hasn't changed. He's had this promise of God. I'm the God of your father Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. I will be with you, he said. Jacob doesn't trust. Would it have been that difficult to go to Laban after God said, you're going back, I'll be with you? Would it have been that hard to go to Laban and say, it's time for us to go, we're leaving? Does he not trust that God will take care of him? Could God not have appeared to Laban in a dream at home just as well as in the campsite? In fact, when Laban says why did you do it? Jacob says, I was afraid. Fear led to deception. And that deception that rubbed off on his wife for again, whatever reason, she takes the idols and Jacob issues a death warrant. And sometimes we look at sin and go, oh, it couldn't be that bad. Look, I got away with it. Nothing happened. But we turn over a couple of chapters and we find that Rachel dies prematurely in childbirth. Sorry if I'm giving things away. She does die. She doesn't grow old with Jacob. The one that Jacob loved, his favorite wife, they don't get to grow old together. The consequences of that sin are played out for that family. We can't escape that but He couldn't change. And so the the application for us, uh, kind of like Sue said, there are, there are three types of people sitting in this room. Uh, there are those of you who spend time in this book, spend time in prayer, sensitive to what God has for you, and you change. It, it may not be this perfect, wonderful line where you're always changing something for the better. It may be fits and starts, but... Over time, you're becoming more godlike, more Christ-like. Maybe not day by day, but certainly month by month and year by year, you can look back and go, God has done a, a work in my life. As our old pastors say, may your tribe increase. If you look at this book and you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life and you partner with Him to change, to not be a Jacob who refuses and can't and won't and doesn't. May your tribe increase. There are others of us who maybe are brand new at this and don't have a clue what that looks like. Well, I don't know how to change. I know what I've been like all my life. And I read this and I, some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't. If if that's where you are and you realize that you don't want to be a Jacob, then talk to one of the elders, email me, call me, see me after church, would love to help you begin that process of, of how to become more Christ-like. You can talk to Bo or Chad or any number of people sitting in this room who understand what that looks like. And they would be happy to help you get from point A to point B. Begin that process of... I believe I'm a new creation like we sang... And I want to be renewed day by day, as we read. And then there may be others of us in here who have been doing this a long time and you find yourself, for whatever reason, laziness, uh, the the frustrations and the hardness of life have just beat you up and you find yourself, I haven't changed in a year or two years or three years or four years. And and in fact, I'm, I'm going backwards, not forwards. Again, if you find yourself in that place, um, we as the body of Christ want to help you reverse that trend. Again, you can contact one of us and we would love to help you begin again the process of, as Paul writes in Romans, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. To help you begin the process of, of taking this book seriously and saying, God has written an instruction manual for me, and I can be different. I I can love my wife the way she needs to be loved. I can love my husband the way he needs to be loved. I can care for my kids the way they need to be cared for. I can serve my neighbor. I can reach out into the community the way it needs to be reached out into. If that's where you are, then please talk to someone. Talk to me call me, send me an email. would love to help you begin that process. But that process can't happen without the Holy Spirit partnering with your will to, to do that. And that's what we celebrate this morning as we come together as a, a body of believers to partake of the fruit of the vine and the bread we celebrate the fact that it is true that we are indeed a new creation. Jacob knew God. I'm assuming most of us in here know God. But that's not all we celebrate. We are thankful, we are grateful for the fact that God gave His Son as a sacrifice for us that we might have eternal life. But that's not all this represents. This is a a meal that we don't just do once, but that we do regularly and often because it reminds us that just as we needed grace for salvation, we need grace daily to live, to change, to trust God when He does things that don't seem fair or right. But it's also an encouragement to the hope that we have that one day we will see Him and we will be like Him. We will be changed. We will finally put off the mess that is our flesh. We will finally leave behind the mess that is this world. God will finally put an end to the mess that is the devil and his schemes against us. And so we come remembering what God has done. We come confident in what God is doing. And we come hopeful in what God will do. All through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I don't know where you are and how you show up in this building this morning. But my prayer is, is that you would spend some time in the next couple of minutes as we pray. If there's something that you need to make right, would you do that? If there's something that you need to spend time before God saying, I have been lazy or careless or beat up, God, and I need help. I'm unhappy with the way you've orchestrated life, but I want to trust you. Would you spend some time in prayer confessing those things that need to be confessed? Get right with God and then we will partake together those of you I know we have all the kids in here together Um, I trust parents that you know where your kids are in terms of their relationship with Christ and you can uh, advise them and help them as we uh, pass out the bread in a moment and the fruit of the vine but would you take a couple of minutes on your own and and pray silently you're welcome to stand kneel sit however you feel in a moment I will close us in, in prayer, and then we will uh, partake of communion together.